0: I was just thinking about my kids as you were talking, and I have definitely spoken sharply to my children in sin in, yes. in ways that I should not have and have had to confess to them. Amen. But, That's I, have exactly also, right. but mm-hmm. I have also spoken sharply to my children in order to save their life. Welcome to the Stand Firm podcast. I'm Nick Lannan of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm here today with J.D. Coke of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Matt Kennedy is taking the week off, resting on his laurels after being quoted in Christianity Today. How are you doing, J.D.? Doing great, Nick. Thanks. How much money did you win or lose on the Kentucky Derby last
1: week? (laughs) I didn't win or lose anything, although I have been known in the past to put a random bet on the most... um, the one with the highest odds so you would have
0: won um, it was the yeah. 80 to one shot that won. i
1: know we did watch it though there's a group there's a group of uh migrants from louisville down here and uh, people that have migrated from louisville uh down here to Christchurch. and so we had a uh, um i think there's about six to eight of us uh, about 20 on the list uh but we met at someone's house and watched the race and had Hot browns and Benedictine and and, and then (laughs) Julius. Can you you
0: describe to our listener what a hot brown is? (laughs) I can,
1: my arteries will clog as I speak. But it's basically, as far as I can tell, a hot brown is like somebody slathered uh, or smothered a a turkey sandwich in cheese and bacon, and then and a um,
0: a slice of tomato.
1: Yeah, and it it actually originated at the Brown Hotel there in Louisville. Yeah, Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's it's actually. Not only visually, but actually unappetizing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: for, a, but, for a city's signature dish, it is quite unappealing.
1: Yeah, but I um, but I have to say the person, if you're listening, the person who made it, uh, it was a, quite a delicious version of this. So there I went to, we ate it heartily. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, and then Benedictine also is something that no one's ever heard of outside of Louisville. And it's, uh, but there you go. So but it was great. It was, a, it was a fun day and it was a good, it was a good weekend all around. So praise God.
0: My kids had a hot brown casserole for lunch at their school, and they were, they were uncertain about it in the aftermath.
1: <laughs> Do they still have the milk bags in high school and things, and like the,
0: the square cartons, pizzas? They had bags. That was really fun. Anyway. Oh, the memories. Indeed. So we have decided to take a deep breath and enter the ongoing Tim Keller discourse, or to put it more accurately, the winsomeness discourse. Is right. winsomeness, however you define that, kindness, I suppose, is winsomeness a viable evangelistic strategy? Now, After James Wood's article about his evolution on Keller, it seemed like absolutely everyone felt like they needed to join the conversation. Uh, Stephen Wedgworth, newly ordained a presbyter in the ACNA, congratulations, even ended up saying they did it. They made me anti-anti-Keller. <laughs> that was funny.
1: <laughs> so it is with great trepidation. That we'll be awaiting that. Steve, if you're listening, we're waiting for the children's board book on that to come out, how to be an anti-anti-Keller. <laughs> <if> that's right.
0: <laughs> nice. So we're going to be careful here. Um, but we thought we might actually be able to add something of value by looking directly at the Bible. The other day, Keller tweeted 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, which reads, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And then Keller added an addendum asking his followers to notice that Paul says to everyone. So what does this passage mean, J.D.? Uh, Especially if it is to be harmonized with 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 4, in which the same writer says to the same audience, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. What is Paul saying when he asks Timothy and us to be kind to everyone?
1: Well, um, I'm not sure what the Greek is behind there, actually. I'm trying to pull it up on my uh, phone. But at the very least, I mean, I think the, the implication in the dialogue is that there is a tone to um, sort of intra-Christian or even evangelistic discourse that when it gets to confrontation or something that's um, uh, maybe critical even, it somehow is a detriment to the to communication of the gospel or even the proclamation of it, that there's a invalidating of the witness, for lack of a better word, in the way that you're going about speaking, not simply the words that you speak. And I think to a certain degree, there's some truth in that. We always go back to First Peter three fifteen to sixteen about uh, be ready in season and out with a ready defense for the hope that you have within you. Um, it would do it with gentleness and humility, you know. And he continues to say so that they can't. So that essentially, what the offensive thing about what you're saying is is the the truth or the 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 claims of the gospel, and not just your own person. And I think I think that's actually an important. Um, uh, lesson that I think we should endeavor to follow and to the extent that Christian people are sort of actively denying that admonition from Paul to Timothy I think they should be held accountable to that I think they should be right like if you are you're purposefully trying to provoke and as it were be intentionally kind of cutting or snarky even to a um, in, in a way that you know is not even seen among pagans you know as Paul would say in Corinth I think you need to consider what what your actual public perception uh, Persona is. I mean, particularly if you're ordained, if you're a pastor, you know, you want to have something as Paul says in in Romans. You know, insofar as we can, remain at peace with everyone, remain at peace. Now, that being said, I think that what's actually behind a lot of the disc- discourse on the internet right now has a lot to do, and I think James Wood nailed it, in fact, was the, the various uh, generational differences between Keller in particular, but he kind of represents that age group. And then as it were, kind of middle-aged people like us and even younger who are um, entering into a uh, cultural discourse that is markedly different than it was even 10 years ago, much less 20 years ago with respect to the tone, um, the stakes, the, even the context, Content for that matter, you know, and so I think that that a lot of the pushback that is that people are wrestling with is that there seems to be a, at least in some people's minds, an immediate retreat from a contentious conversation or even one that had, as it were, um, real feeling behind it, because it's seen that if you if you engage in that type of dialogue, then you are again invalidating your Christian witness. And the, the flip side of that is saying, well, some of these. Issues are uh, of such importance, and the stakes are so high, and on top of it, the conversation partners, for lack of a better word, are vicious and biting that it's it's not only difficult, but in some cases may not even be um, uh I mean, there are times like, for instance, the Apostle Paul, the same one who wrote that to Second Timothy, who called the the Judaizers in in Galatia, you know, uh, dogs. You know, he wished that they would emasculate themselves. You know, that he he stood up to Peter directly and essentially called him a hypocrite in front of all of his uh, his friend friends and colleagues. You know, I mean, the Apostle Paul was um, quick to rebuke, but um, at the same time, uh, also exhorts Timothy to be kind. And I think that's where, again, we pray for wisdom and we pray for um, we pray for Uh, discernment in these conversations and i do think as someone noted uh uh, that you know social media in particular twitter seems to be uh uniquely uh unsuited to have any sort of uh you know legitimate conversation like this because it does seem to be a to whatever benefit it has, it is a an echo chamber and sort of a pep rally and encouraging um, sort of site for people of like-minded, you know, we can sort of gang up on people or you can pile on people you disagree with and, and congratulate yourself and you can congratulate each other upon um, in your own sort of um, groups. So I, I'm not sure Twitter is the best, would be a healthy medium for this type of genuine dialogue at all. But that, that, that being said, I do think that the problem One of the problems, and I've been dealing with this, and I know you have too for as long as I've been um, proclaiming the gospel into the world or just explicating the law into the world, is that there's no really amount of winsomeness that you can um, whisper. You know, thou shalt not commit adultery. Um, you know that you that thou shalt not kill. You know, so essentially you can't uh, you can't whisper that there is a God into the world without provoking the wrath of unbelief. And that's by the power of. I mean, that's that's the the reality of God not being mocked. That has nothing to do with being winsome or or offensive. And so I think if you're basing your speech upon the reaction of unbelievers to what you have said, well, then um, you can be as nice and and as winsome and as kind as you can possibly be. But if you're actually saying something of the truth of God into the world, within the reaction to that is going to, in some cases, uh, provoke wrath. In some cases, it's going to bring conviction. And in some cases, it'll bring repentance. But uh, that we, we cannot judge the efficacy or the the content, you know, the, the whether we're winsome or not by the reaction of our a speech primarily. But again, I'm I'm sympathetic to the desire to try to as much as you are able live in peace with everyone, as Paul says, yeah. and to do our best to to be as as gentle and as reasonable as possible, knowing that if you very gentle and reasonably say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, or, um, you know, your coexist bumper sticker is just a litany of, uh, of mute idols, or um, the, uh, you know, the crystals that you think are bringing you peace um, are actually just uh, rocks created by the only one and true God. I mean, if you just gently and, and very winsomely communicate these truths, to um, an unbelieving world within, well, you're going to quickly be labeled as unwinsome, unloving, intolerant, and all of the various litany of, of uh, accusations, because what's being reacted to is not your tone, but the actual truth behind what you're, you're saying.
0: And to his credit, I think that Keller has been winsomely saying those things for a long time. I agree. I, mean, I he agree. He has I, definitely, you know, as he himself said, and I, w- I would like to have this conversation as much as possible outside of the direct orbit of Tim Keller. But he did, you know, he said that when they were first planting their church, they lost rentals because of their stances. And he has certainly been clear about a whole host of issues over the course of his ministry. I do think that um, I I don't read anybody wishing he was angrier or, or using harsher language, just that he would say that abortion is murder. And I think that he, again, I don't, I don't want to impute to him. I don't know him. I have not read nearly every word that he's written, but that's the, that's the claim that can be whispered as winsomely as possible, but that we believe is true that this is a human life, a person created in the image of God who is being killed. And the political left or rightness is at that level immaterial. And that, that's what people feel like needs to be said into the world. And it's not being said.
1: Yeah. No, no, I think, I think that's true. And I mean, you know, and and like you, I mean, I have had a deep respect for Tim Keller and um, have read many of his books and listened to hours of his sermons and uh, particularly as a young man right out of college, very influenced by him and continue to be. And, And that's precisely to your point, why I think there is some, Disappointment. I mean, that, that's what's interesting to me is it, it doesn't. It, it does seem like. I mean, potentially Jim, James Woods' um, article was as loving a soft critique of someone that I have ever read. I mean, that was not snarky. It was clearly um, he he was expressing some disappointment. Now you can say where well, you don't you shouldn't be disappointed, I and mean, here's X, Y, or Z. But the idea that he was somehow. You know, piling on or or being um, overly critical or unkind to him, I think, is a really uncharitable read to that. And to that end, you know, for me, with respect to Keller, it was back when they passed that abortion law that allowed for the late trimester abortion, and they put all of the lights on the um, Empire Empire State State Building building, things in purple,
0: celebrating and and celebrating,
1: and the fact that at that moment. I think he had an opportunity. Now, to be fair, he's sick. He has all sorts of, I mean, um, he's a human being, you know, I mean, again, I'm not, I'm not saying I would have had the courage at that point to do anything other. But what I can say is someone who looks up to him, that at that moment, there was an opportunity to take the pulpit and condemn that barbarism and that public you know the the glory and their shame is what was happening right there as paul says in in philippians 3 and and he didn't do it and he you know actually i I believe i'm remembering this correctly at one point said that he had not been active on social media during all of that but you know you can't you can't say these things and then have the receipts, as they say these days, because people just pointed out, well, you you tweeted, you know, an hour before and an hour after about all sorts of other stuff. But um, we're silent on this, frankly, shocking and horrific display of um, sort of pagan uh, barbarism that, uh, that erupted from the politicians there in New York. And I think For me, ever since then, it's not that I wrote him off and it's not that I don't still find a lot of his insights and very helpful, but I do think that there was something of a cultural shift that took place that we observed there that perhaps we didn't even realize at the time, but now it's become clear, which is that, you know, as Aaron Wren has pointed out and many other people have picked up on him, you know, the, the neutral world has shifted to the negative world. And as we even see now with the quote-unquote discussion surrounding abortion, um, these are not academic debates. These are not uh, cordial disputations. These are almost literally fighting words now, you know, one side or the other. And that's the devolution of our sort of civic consensus on, uh, you know, winsome discourse, <laughs> for lack of a better word. And, you know, I think that that is going to require a different type public witness than, than perhaps we thought it was going to 20 years ago. And I don't relish that. And I'm not maybe not even particularly, you know, gifted in it. Uh, but at the same time, I do appreciate the people who are saying, that um, some of the nuance and some of the goodwill extended towards the interlocutors um, seems to have been naive at this point, and you even see that Jesus in the in the New Testament. You know, there are times when he engages people like Nicodemus, for instance, or the. Um, you look at Paul. I mean, Peter and Centurion uh, Cornelius, the Centurion. You know, you see people who are engaging. Um, you know, opponents or or questions in genuine good faith, and we see a model of kind rebuke at times, but but certainly engagement. And then there are times when Jesus just dismisses the people, you know, knowing in their hearts what they wanted. He eviscerates them, or at least he exposes the the answering a fool according to his folly. You know, he exposes the proverbs say he exposes the darkness and the the hidden mal um, intentions of their heart. And I think again, that's not something that that we know we are right in, um, and whenever we do it, but I think that um, that there's the prayer for wisdom uh, and I, I often, I often, um, sort of counteract some of these, these ways in, in personal discussions where people come at me, um, hot with questions, you know, I sort of back up a little bit and I say, no, wait a minute, do you really want to know? It seems like, you know what I think, and you're just, you just want me to say it so you can get angry, you know? Um, and this has happened less so now that I'm older. I get, but it used to be when I was, um, you know, sort of in ministry, particularly in Europe, when people were sort of, I was an oddity and they'd, you know, want to find out what we're doing. And every now and then get into some really intense conversations and and i was always um you know trying to pray in the moment um and certainly now beforehand that you know lord give me wisdom to know when there's questions in genuine a uh, good faith you know because i would love to to sit down and let's reason together brother you know but there are also times when he's slipping through the crowd has to be undetected or not thrown off the cliff is is also the way to go so again i'm i'm I am um, somewhat interested in the particulars, as you are, of the Keller discourse, but I'm greatly interested in the general conversation about Christian sort of engagement and our witness um, in the world with respect to kindness and gentleness and winsomeness. And so, I think it's something that is going we're going to need to continue to to discuss, continue to be aware of, and and hopefully be corrected when necessary, but also um, not lose on account of the fear of not being winsome, the courage to actually speak truth in a in this situation where it may be received as a, as an offense.
0: Well, to that end, let's look back at the scriptures for a second, because I would imagine that we'd want to harmonize these scriptures in such a way that St. Paul, who writes this to Timothy, that he should not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone— is the same man who, as you said, um, called the Judaizers in Galatia dogs, and uh, suggested that they castrate themselves. Um, we surely don't think that Saint Paul thought of himself as sinful in that moment. He was doing what he felt obligated in his role to do. So I want to I want to um, suggest something to you and get your reaction to it. Um, I want to suggest that there is a possibility that the scriptures lay out a general principle or a rule, shall we say a law, and then that has a period at the end and it may indeed be communicated in such a way that it does not seem like there are any exceptions like this, right? Must not be quarrelsome, must be kind to everyone, period. That's it. Opponents must be gently instructed, period. But then we have Paul acting in these other ways, and I want to suggest there's a couple of interesting examples, just a few of more that exist, but that I wanted to sort of throw at you for your reaction. Jesus himself makes unqualified statements that then have exceptions, like in Matthew 5, in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, when he says that anyone who says you fool shall be liable to the hell of fire. It's right? got a pretty bold period on the end of it. Don't call anyone a fool. And yet in Matthew 23, 17, Jesus himself calls the Pharisees fools. There's other examples too, like in Matthew 12, 5, Jesus talks about the righteousness of the priests engaged in their labor on the Sabbath, even though the law clearly says that no one can work on the Sabbath. So what do you make of this sort of formula that it's possible to read what Paul writes here in 2 Timothy two as the rule, the general principle, but that there, there would be possible pastoral exceptions to that rule.
1: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think that's um, how you would have to harmonize some of these um, exactly these examples you've you've laid out there. But I, but I also think with respect to this particular issue of being kindness, there is a misunderstanding um, about what what actually. Is kind. What is kind? I mean, <laughs> it's like I was just—we were teaching through Second John today, and you know, John, Second John um, has been said uh, is sort of like the the cover letter for the sermon that is First John. I mean, this is what scholars have at least argued, and it makes a lot of sense if you get into it. But that's not the point. But the point is. That you know, First John and Second John is an appeal to abide in the truth, you know, and, and the truth will unite you. And the truth is actually, as he'll say in the whole of First John, the five chapters of it, is actually loving. Like it's not loving to to persist in a lie, and it's not kind. To, um, to answer a fool according to his folly, according to the prophets. It's not kind to persist in a conversational tone with uh, people who are, again, persisting in perpetuating a lie, I mean, in whatever the case may be. And so, so for instance, you could argue in this case, it's not kind to euthanize abortion you know it's not kind to you know it's the i forget what sociologist said define deviancy down you know it's not kind to talk about it as healthcare you know it's not kind to to it's not because it's not true You know, and I think that's where that's where a lot of um, this discourse has ended, because people will immediately, upon being hurt by the accusation, which comes from the simple statement of the law, claim that there has been an unkindness done to them or a violence. Even we've talked about this and, you know, we need to be wise about that, because if that's true, then I need to to examine what I said and really reflect, you know, did is what I said actually unkind. Like, did I say something that was untrue and, you know, uh, particularly hurtful? Was it uh, somehow unchristian, you know, in, in some way, but if it was, if it was as gentle and as we said before, gentle and a humble way to communicate an uncomfortable truth, well, that's actually the height of love and is actually a kindness that many people do not extend to the people they purportedly love. I mean, that's what the, that's what the whole heartbreaking thing about the entire modern conception of love really is which can only be held by people who either have never had children or who have had their children taken away from them by uh, by the authorities because if you think loving your child is to and being kind to them is somehow being dishonest with them about any manner of things you know what they should eat what they should wear how they should you know i was just not... thinking
0: just thinking about my kids as you were talking and i have definitely spoken sharply to my children in sin in, yes. in ways that I should not have and have had to confess to them. Amen. That's but I have, exactly also, right. but mm-hmm. I have also spoken sharply to my children in order to save their life. That's right. No, that's a, and I think <laughs> like, that's a perfect. Come back from the edge of the pool, like right now. Or like, I think you know, you're not looking example. at what's happening, you're in the middle right. of the street. I, I need you to be aware and add attention immediately. And yes. my, my speech must evoke that.
1: And I, think, and I think, again, back to the particular instance of Keller, not to beat up on him, but I, I can speak as someone who looks up to him and considers him in a, in a general sense, certainly for many years looked up to him as with more authority and influence in my life than bishops that we had at the time. And, you know, there is maybe a youthful over-expectation and naivete about the, the type, strength, and courage they should evince at every time, and when it doesn't happen, you know, right. then we get disappointed. I mean, perhaps that's part of this. But at the same time, I do think you have a generation of, of pastors of which we are part who, um, you know, signed up for a church in a world that has become, look decidedly different, which, you know, we we don't have to bemoan. This is how the Lord has called us. The time he has called us to to minister within nevertheless we are still in need of and require um, encouragement and strong shepherds and guides and when however slightly they let us down which is somewhat what sort of being communicated in this whole discourse there's a need to be able to express that without being unkind or uncharitable or or being labeled as you know divisive or caustic or whatever because i think you have people who have spent, you know, their adult lives, and I can speak as someone who resembles this remark, trying to be as accepted and winsome and gentle within the um, sort of secular world, for lack of a better word, as as I could be. You know, whether that's in academia or societally or uh, socioeconomically, whatever the case is, um, you know, in every instance, I found myself, I have tried to to be as wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove, and yet when we get to these hot-button cultural issues, which happen to simply be flaunting rejections of the moral law of God, you know, whether it's respect to sex or gender or abortion or marriage or whatever whatever the issues are, there's no amount of winsomeness. There's no amount of kindness. There's no amount of um, sophistication that will actually be able to translate these convictions into a palatable sermon for an unbelieving heart. And so, well, you know, it'll I be think a that's,
0: palatable sermon, but it won't be a Christian sermon. And it might, well, exactly. it, it might bring people into your church but at the cost of your church being a church
1: that's right as i mean i preached about this this sunday um because i was uh just struck given to uh remind people because as you know we talked about last week um when we have facing eviction from our building i was just led to preach a sermon like unlike i've which i've ever really preached before uh, from the pulpit basically reiterating why the acna was necessary in the first place and pointed out the The fact that all of these hot button issues about which we are constantly speaking uh, were precipitating factors for the the necessary um, creation of a church that was actually founded to witness to, to the word of God against these. Outright flaunting of of his uh, design for human sexuality, his his uh, you know the, the the uniqueness of human life in the womb. I mean, as you well know, as as priests in the ACNA, we are beholden to protect life from natural conception to I mean from conception to natural birth. Which you know, I said in the conception sermon, I said
0: natural death.
1: That's right. I said in the sermon, you know, I don't know what what you think or what one may think about this but i know what i think and i'm a you know i know what our church thinks and i know why we were founded in part was to clarify some of this confusion and so i think when you have an opportunity and a place of authority and a platform however big or small to either sow confusion or to to be clear then what is considered to be winsome or kind in many people's parlance is to further cloud or nuance an issue, as opposed to just speak uh, clearly and, as Matt would say, um, strongly on the internet. You know, and I think again, I'm I'm convicted by this because for many years I was. Um, you know, thought that the, I mean, I did buy some of Keller's MO in that respect and tried to be nuanced and, and, you know, let's have a conversation and let's hear both sides and all the things. And, and there's something to be said in that in an interpersonal collegial way, but as a pastor and as a father and as a leader, I find that that is, it's not only confusing; it actually begins to weaken the confidence in the people that are following you or listening to you that you actually have the convictions and courage that bound behind which you're you're standing. And I think, um, you know, I don't think that Tim Keller doesn't believe in any things. I think his his statement on human sexuality that he helped author with the PCA was brilliant and courageous. I think you know he's facing his own mortality with uh, courage and strength. And so, God bless him. But I do think the conversation is necessary as we watch the baton being passed from one generation to another, and I pray that we do not, um, you know, react and sort of become just, uh, you know, kind of the the pendulum swing in the opposite other way, absolute other way. But I do think that part of learning how to navigate the new culture is to have these conversations, and I hope that they aren't simply silenced by the accusations of being unkind or some sort of tone, because even if they are some tone that is not sort of initially re, re, um, received as being kind or loving, well, even even in that instance, you know, that's, a, that's a, a learning process going forward as to how how we will be a united Christian witness um, in, in hopefully a kind and gentle way, you know, be ready with a ready defense for the hope that we have.
0: I think it was Neil Shenvey this week who said that it's obvious to everyone, and this is not an exact quote, but he said something like, it's obvious to everyone that you're catechizing your parish by the things you say, it's not as obvious, but just as true that you're catechizing your parish by the things that you don't say. And that's convicting to me for sure.
1: I think that's a really good insight and it's convicting to me as well. Nick, I mean, I'm, um, you know, as we you know, as well as anyone, I mean, we are sort of reluctant um, combatants, you know, whatever it may seem um, that, you know, (laughs) really (laughs) went uh, through pretzels trying to uh, put ourselves in pretzels, trying not to, you know, make anyone upset or try not try to listen and try to be. I'd all like to days. remain
0: a cruise ship captain, not a battleship captain. That's Thank exactly right. Much. I
1: was, I was very much, um, I enjoyed the. I love a cruise, a good cruise, <laughs> but I think, um, you know, I think that that's a really wise insight that Neil had because, you know, what did, you know, the responsibility that we have as, as pastors, as parents, as husbands, as sons, as, as, witnesses in the world is important and powerful and meaningful. And I think that, um, you know, to the extent that we don't think something is important that the culture considers in incredibly important is going to simply allow the their catechism to take place um, over against ours. And so, you know, I wish I didn't have to speak about, you know, sexuality issues to you know as early as we have to wish we didn't have to talk I mean try explaining what abortion is to a six-year-old you know um and and that's uh, a little slice of hell right there you know but there we go and but if we don't then it either it, it, it communicates one of two things either we don't have an answer which is terrible or worse that we think the answer that they'll get from the world is sufficient and in some cases that might be fine you know if it has to do with the flavors of ice cream or the relative merits of basketball to football or something but that's um but that's an entirely different issue when it talks about um, matters of utmost concern and ultimately ones that have effects on on your soul and so well
0: you know, we've seen think, the results of it too we you We've seen this generation of people who have grown up thinking that their church did not have any answers, and That's that was right. largely because either they didn't have any answers or they were afraid to verbalize the answers that they had.
1: That's right. Or, or that the answers were assumed by both, and this is what I've seen too, the clergy will assume oh, that, yeah. they, the, that they know the answer, in which case, which case the person in the pew either agrees with, but doesn't have any sufficient backing for it, which is what we've run into before. You know, I know that marriage is between a man and a woman. I don't know why that's important. I don't know where it says in the Bible. I don't know what sort of system that would need to be perpetuated by. I don't know why it would be God's good design, but I do know that's right. It's like, well, that's not going to withstand, you know, the ire of your nephew at Mm -hmm. Thanksgiving, you know, but the flip side of that is that if I think I know what the pastor says, and he hasn't defended it, articulated it, communicated it, taught it. Then the ease—that's an almost easier dismissal. You know, it's like the the high schooler that's forced to go to church and just rolls her eyes every time the the old guy says something remotely conservative about anything. And it's that's why our task—and we've we've talked about this—and and, and you you and I are both impl- implementing it. Matt certainly is—is is to not be passive in any aspect of this but to be proactive with listening to the culture and listening to the discussion dialogue and then as winsomely <laughs> and kindly as possible uh, <laughs> excuse me walk our parishes and the, the sort of the, the catechism and the equipping aspect of it through how to to digest this, this these aspects of the faith that um, that are all important so that when you get in these conversations you're not brittle or shrill or defensive or angry but do you actually have a measure of confidence you know i mean it's like i think about these all the time it's like like when a child runs up to you all apoplectic and you know aghast about some terrible injustice or calamity that's befallen them and you know that it's not that important and at that moment you know if you're an adult uh, which isn't always the case, but if you've been prepared for this, you don't just all of a sudden flip out and throw yourself on the ground and and start yelling. Like you listen and you you let them work out the situation, and then you calmly and with gentleness and humility help begin uh, you know restoring sanity to the world. And I think that's that to the extent that you have a faith that is thick, not thin and brittle and and um, easily broken, well, then you can have these conversations and you can be winsome and kind and you can live, have someone say, well, I think you're full of, you know, full of hot air. You know, I think your God's a child abusing, you know, monster, whatever, you know, whatever the dismissal of Christianity is. You're like, well, I mean, I'm not surprised you say that, you know, like I could I see from your perspective how that might actually be a, a viable interpretation. And yet, you know, here we here we are. You know, I, I disagree with you, and let's keep talking if possible. I mean, that was probably the height of Keller's, you know, the the reason for God discussion videos that we watched those years ago. And that was a um helpful insofar as it goes. But I think we're going to have to to wrestle with the two implications that there are people with with genuine questions that are being slowly, having their eyes, the scales removed from their eyes by the power of the Holy Spirit, who are like Nicodemus searching for answers. And then there are people who are um, simply willfully and unapologetically rejecting the truth of God for a lie and wanting to simply trap and ensnare and, and you know, the wisdom to determine between the two of those is something that we're going to have to pray for on a, on a case-by-case basis. So.
0: Amen. But, well, I hope our listener appreciates the winsomeness of this conversation. It was, it was hard, hard won and accomplished by asking our non-winsome friend, Matt Kennedy, to stay home. <laughs> well, that is all the time that we have this week. Uh, we would love to keep the conversation going with you. You can be in touch with us by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes, sending us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com, or joining the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. We're grateful that you took the time to listen to us today. Uh, thank you to J.D. and to Matt, wherever he may be. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm.